Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada. Today, in our final message of celebrating the Word of God, we'll unpack what is perhaps the most important doctrine today when it comes to the Bible. So let's begin as we listen to Dr. Neufeld speak on the inerrancy of the Bible. In the fall of 1978, a meeting was held in the Hyatt Regency O'Hare in Chicago. The meeting included over 300 leading pastors and scholars. Some some of the names that attended were Carl F.H. Henry, J.I. Packer, James Boise, Norman Geisler, Gleason Archer, Francis Schaeffer, John Warwick Montgomery, Kenneth Cancer, Harold Linzel, a whole host of others. Now, I mention those names because some of my hearers will recognize some of those names as among the finest biblical scholars and teachers of the 20th century, coming from a wide variety of Christian denominations. This was a gathering of the who's who in the evangelical world. Now, the reason for the meeting was to address a concern, a concern over the continual eroding of confidence that many were expressing in the Bible. Liberal theology, then still very strong, was arguing that the Bible was not a revelation from God at all, but rather a record of man's quest to try to understand God. And another strain of thinking was called neo-orthodoxy, and it was arguing that the Bible is only true insofar as it excites faith in the heart, but that it was not objectively true. And some seminaries and Bible colleges, and therefore also pastors that were trained in these institutions, were preaching in pulpits throughout North America and were denying the inerrancy of Scripture. And so these leading evangelical teachers decided it was time to respond and and put together a statement regarding biblical inerrancy. It was, if you will, the drawing of a line in the sand. Amidst the confusion of what we should make of the Bible, these Bible teachers thought a direct statement was required that would help God's people get perspective on the authority of the Bible. The group formed a document called the Chicago Declaration of Biblical Inerrancy. And I can't go through the entire document, but but let me quote a few short statements from the authors of this document. They said, and I quote, Holy Scripture, being God's own word, written by men, prepared and superintended by His Spirit, is of infallible divine authority in all matters upon which it touches. It is to be believed as God's instruction in all that it affirms, obeyed as God's command in all that it requires, embraced as God's pledge in all that it promises. And then came the key statement, being holy and verbally God-given. Scripture is without error or fault in all its teaching, no less in what it states about God's acts in creation, about the events of the history of the world, and about its literary origins under God, and also in its witness to God's saving grace in individual lives. Well, let's see if I can restate that in some of my own words. The Bible makes no mistakes, these men said. This is not only true when it speaks about our salvation, but it's also true when it speaks about anything else, including creation, historical events, and even when it makes claims to authorships, such as when a book begins by claiming to have been written by Paul or by Peter or by Isaiah, the Bible, they said, is quite simply free from all error, mistakes, deception, falsehood, and fraud in every subject matter upon which it addresses itself. Now, of course, this had been said in the past, and it was believed in the past. 
Some of the scholars who met in Chicago back in 1978 had done extensive research on what the church fathers had believed and taught. Also, Augustine and Jerome, and then into the Middle Ages to Thomas Aquinas, and and then to the Reformation to Calvin and Luther and Zwingli. But with the destructive biblical criticism that has arisen in the 19th and 20th century, a historic confidence in the Bible was taking a beating. And some pastors had unwittingly begun to adopt these destructive attitudes, and the doctrine of the Scriptures needed to be restated with clarity. Now, just so we understand, what was being said by these Bible teachers who met in Chicago was not that our English Bibles or any other translation was free from mistakes. It's more than legitimate for Bible-believing scholars to debate about the proper translation of a word or a phrase or the intention of various points of grammar. After all, our Bible is an old book that comes to us from another language. Nor were they saying that every ancient manuscript that we have in our possession is perfect. But what these scholars were saying, and indeed what the church has said in the past, is that the Bible as it was originally given— or as it was in the original manuscripts, when it came from the pen of a prophet or an apostle, was wholly without error in the original writing. Now, there are those who immediately criticized this. They argued, well, we don't have the original manuscripts of any Bible book, and, and of course that would be true. But we have thousands of ancient manuscripts or copies which have been painstakingly compared with other ancient manuscripts so that we have a very clear idea of what the original actually said. According to New Testament scholar Craig Bloomberg, 97 to 99 percent of the New Testament can be reconstructed beyond any reasonable doubt and... No Christian doctrine is founded solely or even primarily on a textually disputed passage. You know, as an expert in ancient manuscripts, Dr. Bloomberg was saying that there are no variant readings among various ancient manuscripts that affect issues of doctrine or historical fact. For all intents and purposes, the New Testament as we have it today is the same message and content as the original manuscripts. You know, imagine the Louvre Museum in Paris had a fire, and the Mona Lisa was burned up. But know also that we have thousands of copies made of the original. Even though it may be a tragedy, we would never lose sight of what the original looked like. See, the same is true of the actual manuscripts the Bible was originally written on. Over time, the originals written on ancient scrolls simply deteriorated. But they were copied many times, and so we have no doubt about what the originals actually said. But here's a question. Why didn't God supernaturally preserve the originals? Well, we don't know, but I think we can speculate. God did not want us bowing before pieces of paper that were touched by the hand of Paul. There was been so much of veneration of objects in the past. Rather, God wanted us to pay attention to the actual words that he had written. At any rate. When we talk about the inerrancy of the Bible, we do not mean that the English Standard Version is perfect or the New International Version is perfect or that the King James Version is perfect. That would be like claiming that a version produced in 1611 based on a copy was perfect. What we mean is that the original writings were without error of any kind. Now, having said that, we still need to define what we mean. We're not saying that our interpretation of the Bible is inerrant. 
Some of you remember that in the Middle Ages, some people used the Bible to try to prove that the earth was flat and even used passages like the one found in Isaiah 11, in which we read of the four corners of the earth. But of course, if you study that passage carefully, you'll find it has nothing to do with the dimensions of the earth. It was using a figure of speech to speak of all of the earth or the entire earth. So, for instance, if I were to tell you that the sun rose today, you'd be wrong to say that I made a mistake. The sun doesn't rise, you would say the earth actually rotates. I would then respond by saying, I was not making a scientific statement about the relationship of the sun to the earth, only that I'm using human conventional speech to speak about the time of the day when we observe the sun rising on the horizon. You see, the Bible does use conventional human language, and it does sometimes give approximations, and when giving numbers of people, it does so, and sometimes contains loose quotations, and it sometimes uses grammatical forms that are unique. But it's not that the Bible has a problem. We do. We should remember, for instance, that standard dictionaries defining standard spelling and grammar is a most recent invention. In ancient times, standard grammar could vary from village to village. So as a matter of fact, when we find unusual grammar in the Bible, it's not a mistake. It's in fact an acceptable use of speech. Now, those who argue for inerrancy are not forcing some kind of an unnatural literalism onto the Bible. What we are saying is that when the Bible is allowed to speak for itself, all that it affirms is to be trusted right down to the detail. You know, theologian and Bible teacher Paul Feinberg says that inerrancy means that when all the facts are known, the scriptures in their original autographs and properly interpreted will be shown to be wholly true in everything that they affirm, whether that has to do with doctrine or morality or with the social, physical, or life sciences. And when we come back, we're going to see that's just what the scholars in Chicago in 1978 were trying to say. They were saying that the Bible as it was given was without error. Well, that's also what Jesus thought. That's also what the apostles thought. We're going to see that, and that's what we should think today as well. As we begin to discover how and why the Bible is inerrant, we recognize that this is quite a major topic. We must be careful to define what inerrancy means and also what it doesn't mean. Moreover, in an age of confusion and doubt, it's necessary, if not beneficial, to be clear on this issue both within and outside the church. When we come back, Dr. Neufeld helps us further understand how important it is to fully affirm and believe in the Bible's inerrancy. Next week, in fact, for the next four weeks, we're excited to announce that Dr. Neufeld will be teaching the last volume in his series on the book of Revelation entitled, The Triumph of the Lamb. The final four weeks containing 20 new messages will focus on the study of Revelations chapter 18 to 22. So much to be discussed, so much that provides for us an understanding of God's plan for believers, for a new heaven and a new earth, and our eternity in the presence of God. And while the Revelation series is airing, We want to make the Volume 4 available to you for only $19 or an exclusive package of the entire four-volume 80-message Revelation series, The Triumph of the Lamb, for only $75, and either option includes shipping and handling. So to receive your very special offer or to support the ministry with a donation, call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit us online at Back to the Bible. 
www.ca. Jesus believed in the inerrancy of the Bible, and he said so. In Matthew 5:18, he says, For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Jesus was not just affirming the authority of the Old Testament in broad, general terms. He was saying that the smallest component of the text, down to the smallest letter in the alphabet, the tiniest stroke of the pen, is to be affirmed as the Word of God. The Holy Spirit didn't just inspire the grand progression of thought in the Bible. He directed every single mark made on a piece of paper down to meticulous details. We see more of this in the teaching of Jesus. He consistently treats Old Testament historical descriptions as straight-up facts. I don't have time to go through all the texts, but if we did, we would find him referring to Abel, Noah, Abraham, the institution of circumcision in Genesis 17, the events of Sodom and Gomorrah, of Lot, of manna in the desert, of the snake in the desert, of David eating the consecrated bread, of Elisha, and of Jonah as real facts. He believed these events exactly as they were written. Jesus repeatedly refers to Moses as the giver of the law, and he repeatedly refers to the first five books of the Bible as those books given by Moses his words. Consider, for instance, how often harsh and critical scholars will ridicule the account of Jonah. You know, I myself attended and graduated from a seminary in which I had a professor who thought the account of Jonah to be an utter fabrication. Now listen to what Jesus thought. I'm reading from Matthew 12, 41. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Or think of what Jesus thought about the account of the flood. In Matthew 24, verses 37 to 39, he says, For as were the days of Noah, so with the coming of the Son of Man. For in those days before the flood they were eating and drinking and marrying and given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark, and they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. Now, I suppose we can say if Jesus was wrong about the flood and about Jonah, I guess he was wrong about his own second coming. Furthermore, In Matthew 4, at each temptation, Jesus completely relied on Scripture simply by responding to each temptation by saying, it is written. And to cap it off, in John 10, verse 35, Jesus, in a debate with the Jewish religious leaders, said, Scriptures cannot be broken. He meant that every single word of Scripture is completely true and reliable. The New Testament writers felt the same way. The New Testament quotes the Old Testament more than 800 times, and some even suggest that a full 10% of the New Testament is made up of either quotes or allusions from the Old Testament. That's because New Testament writers grounded in the Old Testament now went through the Old Testament in the light of Jesus and explained its true intent. You know, in one sense, the New Testament is a commentary on the Old Testament in the light of Jesus. So how much did the New Testament writers trust their Old Testament? Well, so much so that in Galatians 3, Paul builds an entire argument of the importance of Christ based upon whether an Old Testament text was found in the plural or in the singular. Paul trusted the Old Testament down to every last grammatical expression. And yet, many scholars and even Bible teachers in our day deny biblical inerrancy. 
We hear people saying, well, I don't think the Bible is inerrant. I think it's infallible. Or they'll say, you know, I have the highest view of Scripture. I just don't feel comfortable with the word inerrant because, well, it's not found in the Bible. And besides, the word inerrancy itself presupposes a scientific precision on the Bible that is simply not there. And others will point out that they think there are apparent errors in the Bible, and they'll include some so-called discrepancies in the four Gospels or in some supposed numerical discrepancies or genealogies and so forth. You know, on a program of this length, we can't answer all of those objections, but we can make a few observations. One is rather simple. Those who say they believe in infallibility rather than inerrancy are actually using misleading language. Imagine a student in a classroom uh, completes a multiple-choice exam. Maybe it's out of 50 questions, gets them all right. The teacher writes on the student's exam paper, you are inerrant. You know, that simply means he didn't make any mistakes. But if a teacher were to write, and I can't imagine a teacher writing this, if he were to write, you are infallible, well, that would mean that you not only make no mistakes, it means far more than that. It means you are incapable of making mistakes. That's what infallible means. So in real English language, the word infallible is a stronger word than inerrant. But in here's the problem. In theological circles, the word infallible is often used to mean that the purpose of Scripture is to teach faith and practice only. And they mean that the Bible makes mistakes when it speaks about matters not concerned with faith and practice, but infallible when it speaks on matters of faith. So, from their words, mistakes can be made in grammar or geography or science or in recounting historical events, but no mistakes can be made in telling us how to be saved and walking a godly life. And those who argue for the infallibility of Scripture only and not its inerrancy often mean just that. To that, we answer in two ways. One, if that's what you believe, you ought to tell us plainly, rather than using the word infallible. You should be saying, I believe in limited inerrancy. That is, I believe inerrancy is only limited to certain Bible passages and not to others. In other words, stop trying to confuse God's people about what you're actually teaching. And two, would you also explain to us who makes the decision as to which Bible texts are inerrant and which are not? Because as I've observed this matter, the list of those Bible texts thought to be filled with error is constantly growing from genealogies at first to creation to, to whether Adam and Eve were literal people to, to whether homosexuality is really bad after all. See, the list keeps growing and growing. And soon the Bible is portrayed like any other human book that makes some good points and some bad points. And so to use the word infallible to describe this kind of a process, well, frankly, that's deceptive. Tell us what you really mean. But others, while not going so far, will say that they still have problems with the word inerrancy. After all, they argued the word is not found in the Bible, so why should we use it? After all, it seems to divide people. But let's remember that the word Bible is not found in the Bible. Neither is the word Trinity nor the word incarnation. I mean, I could go on and on. I think we all know that sometimes we need to use a word that captures a teaching that we find in the Bible. But here's the real question. What would happen if we deny inerrancy? What would happen if we believe that God sometimes makes mistakes or, or sometimes deceives us or, or sometimes God didn't know all the details about something? Would we still be able to say, well, we trust God? 
Or would we then conclude that our judgments about what is true is actually greater than God? And if the Bible is wrong in some details, how can we be assured that the Bible can be trusted in other areas? No, it really won't do to say that the Bible makes mistakes, but only in a few minor matters. Let me quote an old poem. For the want of a nail, the shoe was lost. For want of the shoe, the horse was lost. For want of a horse, the rider was lost. For want of a rider, the battle was lost. For want of the battle, the kingdom was lost. And all for the want of a horseshoe nail. See, the point of that poem is that sometimes what we think are small and insignificant matters are in fact matters of great importance more than we can imagine. But praise God. God has spoken, and this word, the Bible, can be trusted, as Jesus said, down to the smallest stroke of the pen. Thank you, Lord, that you have left us with an inerrant word. As Proverbs 35 to 6 reminds us, every word of the Lord proves true. He is a shield to those who take refuge in him. Do not add to his words, lest he rebuke you and you be found a liar. And as Psalm 18 verse 30 says, this is God. His way is perfect. The word of the Lord proves true. Join me in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, as we have discussed your word for these last two weeks, thank you that you are a speaking God. Lord, we're so glad that you have not left us without your word. Thank you that we can live on your word. Thank you that your word is perfect. Thank you, Heavenly Father, that it will teach us not only how to live, but how to live eternally. Lord, thank you for the Bible. Thank you for the Word of God. Amen. So grateful you spent the week with us. You know, our prayer is that you've been blessed and inspired by Dr. Neufeld's series, Celebrating the Word. As a ministry, we're committed to teaching the Bible in truth and with grace. And there's no greater way to know God than through the study of the Bible. Next week, we're excited to begin airing Dr. Neufeld's fourth and final installment of his Revelation series, The Triumph of the Lamb. Make sure to tune into this station or listen online at backtothebible.ca, download the Back to the Bible Canada mobile app, or subscribe for our daily podcast. This month as well, the entire Revelation series will be available on CD at an exclusive feature price. $19 for The Triumph of the Lamb, Volume 4, or $75 for the complete four-volume set. Either way, we want to include the price of shipping and taxes. Call us today at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca to order or to support the Bible teaching ministry of Back to the Bible Canada. So remember, join us next week for The Triumph of the Lamb, Volume 4, our study on the book of Revelation, right here on Back to the Bible Canada, where we teach the Bible. In Doubt is the young adult ministry of Back to the Bible Canada. It's where young adults like me are encouraged to wrestle with questions about life, faith, and culture. So many young adults find themselves in doubt, and our goal is for that to only be temporary, where myself and others like me can instead feel the support and community of In Doubt. The main focus is the weekly podcast with host Ryan McCurdy, where we hear conversations with recent guests like pro-life activist Stephanie Gray and President and CEO of Compassion Canada, Barry Sloan-White. 
Coming up, Inda will be hosting two events that I'm looking forward to. A live panel coming in the spring and a live and in concert show coming in the fall. To find out more about Indoubt and the other resources offered, go to indoubt.ca or call 1-800-663-2425.